Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Chapter 49, Blood Bond. As the Black Watch started to roll up the hill after them, Gillespie was immediately grateful for two things. Firstly, that they'd had a decent head start, and secondly, that Alistair McGregor was in the cat with them. He clearly knew this area better than anyone, and he swiftly took control, shouting directions to Charlie and guiding them deep into the forest. The dark pines closed in, cutting them off from view and shrouding them in the oppressive silence of forestry monoculture. Sal was in the cab with Charlie, while Gillespie, Nin and Alistair stood in the back, holding onto the roll cage. A heated discussion was building, as Alistair discussed the merits of the various routes with Nin, who seemed reluctant to agree to his suggestion. Eventually, Alistair thumped on the roof to get Charlie to stop, and they all got out as he tried to explain his plan. With the point of his sword, he quickly sketched the outline of Loch Rannoch in the mud. Jabbing at it, he implored them to listen to his advice. Look, we passed along the north side of Loch Rannoch when we came from the border. That's the way that the watch came from their barracks, so they're bound to be all over it. We'd either need to sneak past them or somehow get across the loch to the Black Wood on the south side, neither of which will be easy. I know you want to get to Pilochery to pick up the wade, but you'd be mad to follow the tunnel to do it. He now outlined a long loch that ran at near right angles to Loch Rannoch. This is Loch Erecht. It runs north from here, all the way to Dalwini. This forestry runs up to its southern shore, meaning we can shelter in it to hide from the watch, even if they're using drones. Once we get to the loch, there is a rough but passable cattle track that can take us along the east side, all the way to the Wade. Then, if you're going to Kindrocket, you can carry on all the way around Kinviki, Tomintool, Crethy, to get you to Braemar. I know it looks like a long way around, and it is a long way around but it's either that or dealing with the Black Watch. I know which I'd rather. Apart from anything else, the Watch will not expect you to go that way. They think that you are Grigorach, and that you would naturally be heading deeper into Rannoch, where they might fear to follow. The chances of them seeing us if we go via Erecht are slim and non-existent if we follow the east side of the loch. How can we trust you, said Nin, in an uncharitable voice. How do we know you're not just going to lead us into some bog where you can rob and murder us? Isn't that what you Grigorath do best, after all? Let's not forget that it was only a few moments ago you had us hogtied and were threatening us with all kinds of violence. I must need my head examined to be trusting any Grigorath, let alone you, Alistair McGregor. Alistair could not hide his anger at this insult. The gauze and vapour that always seemed to shade and blur his features parted, fully revealing two hard, pale eyes that burned out at Nin beneath his thick brows. Without speaking, he bent down and picked the skin dew out of his stocking and cut a line across his right hand. He wordlessly stretched it out towards Nin, allowing the blood to slowly pool in the cup of his palm. Nin contemplated it for a few moments, before he too slowly bent down and taking his own blade cut his palm likewise. He then clasped Alistair's in a vice-like grip, their commingled blood oozing out, red and thick to drip onto the grass below. Sal stepped forward, and clasping their clenched hands between hers, said, Under canon I hereby declare that by blood you have been joined, and only by blood can you be parted. They both nodded, holding each other's gaze all the while. 
They then started to go over the detail of the plan again, as if the argument had never happened. Gillespie turned to Charlie. What the hell was that all about? Jesus, Charlie stood, frowning, as if struggling to process what had just happened. They've made a blood bond, an unbreakable commitment that binds them together. What? Is Nin mad? Gillespie was astonished. You saw how Alistair reacted to Nin's accusation. This was clearly the only way he felt he could show his good faith and preserve Clayu. After all, Nin saved his life back at the inn. By binding himself to Nin in this way, Alistair was making a pledge to repay that debt. It is not a gift that is offered or received lightly. They are brothers now in the eyes of the law, with all that entails. You mean that Nin now is a Grigorach brother? Why on earth would he do that? Charlie looked at Gillespie beneath knitted eyebrows. This will bring complicated consequences, but it's too late to worry about that now. Gillespie looked over at Alistair, who was now locked in an intense but calm discussion with Nin, and using his sword to point out the route on his mud-sketched map, his features once again blurred beneath that enigmatic haze. He wondered how such a young man, and he guessed that Alistair could not have been more than 30, could have acquired such a fearsome reputation. He looked more suited to a seminary. But his leadership qualities were not in question, and having concluded the discussion, they all jumped back in the cat and ploughed on into the Dewar Forest. After 45 minutes traversing the dark green desert of the plantation, Charlie poked the nose of the cat out of the trees. They looked down the fine vista of a narrow loch, hemmed in on either side by high hills. Alistair pointed out Ben Alder to the west, its mighty plateau rising sharply out of the water. A dramatic sight. It was snowbound and imperious. There was a clearly visible path that traced the western shore, but instead Alistair directed Charlie to turn east. After fording a river, they picked up a droving track that followed a fast-flowing stream which had carved a path between two peaks. This track wound up into the hills behind the eastern shore of the loch, hiding them from view of any pursuers. As the cat climbed higher into the corries of the encompassing hills, it got increasingly cold and icy, but it nonetheless remained passable. After the previous few nights of exposure, which he wasn't keen to repeat, Gillespie felt a palpable sense of relief as they finally started descending again to rejoin the loch side, about halfway to Dalwini. From here the track was much easier, and as dark was falling they could see the lights of the township ahead. Nin was driving, and as they approached the junction with the wade, he started tapping at the fuel gauge on the dashboard. Unsurprisingly, his tapping made no difference to the position of the needle, which was resolutely stuck on empty. They were going to have to stop for fuel, and after a quick discussion, all agreed this was probably the moment to part company. Although they'd only known Alistair and Sal for a few hours, the parting was much harder than it deserved to be. The skirmish at the inn and the subsequent flight through the hills had created a bond far more profound than the mere passage of hours. Gillespie embraced Sal, hugging her close, feeling her strong arms crush him in return, while Alistair very formally held out his hand and shook his warmly fixing him with those pale eyes, wordlessly communicating his thanks and friendship. Nin, on the other hand, qualified for a hug and a smile from Alistair McGregor, who also shared the details of the encrypted messaging service the Grigorach used. They promised to meet once the dust had settled, with Alistair promising a tour of the darkest reaches of Rannoch, while Nin offered the convivial charms of Elric in return. Waving them off into the darkness, Nin started the cat and turned onto the wade, heading north. After all the drama of the past few days, the next few hours were dull and mundane. Having stopped to fill the cat up with fuel near the famous distillery, 
they left Darwini and motored north, following the waves that circumscribed the high mountains of the Cairngorms. Gillespie spent most of the journey asleep, only stirring when Charlie elbowed him awake as they approached Braemar, the centre of Farkasan territory and the location of Kindrocket, Charlie's family home. The road was squeezed between heavy forestry on one side and the winding turns of the River Dee on the other. The blackness of the night, with the moon well hidden behind the thick cloud, meant little could be seen beyond that illuminated in the streetlights. Having passed a hotel and a few bars, they crossed the Clooney Water and arrived at a rather battered pair of gates, which Charlie opened with his phone. The drive to the house was short, and with a flourish, Charlie swung the cat in front of a set of steep stone stairs that led up to a main door. After the grandeur of Inverary, or the looming presence of Dundarav, Kindrocket was a modest and approachable kind of castle. The narrow stone steps led to a centrally located door, tightly sandwiched between two towers, set with arched, ashlar-dressed windows and topped by witches' hat roofs. On either side of these towers was a single bay across three storeys, and the smaller ground-floor windows sensibly elevated ten feet off the ground to deter unwanted visitors. Like Charlie, it was rough-hewn, but handsome, charming and inviting, with no airs or pretenses. It had been home to the Farkasons for many centuries, and Gillespie was unimaginably grateful to step across its threshold into the warmth and welcome that awaited them therein. Chapter 50. The Warden of the West. John Lamont could barely contain himself as he strode up the hill to the Realtas. It was a wet and dull morning, but nothing could darken his mood as he walked through the Dur Granite Arcade to get to the main entrance. Although he hadn't had much sleep, he still felt refreshed, and with a spring in his step, he pushed through the imposing doors. Having deposited his bag and passed through security, he checked his appearance in a mirror. He had made a special effort with his great plaid, and even pinned it with his most impressive hunk of family silver. He wasn't going to have any of those bastards looking down on him today. Entering the Collier chamber, he saw that it was already almost full. Of course, his place on the front bench was free, and next to him, McCallum Moores was empty too and so it would remain. Across the aisle was Dewitt, a discreet hint of a smile, her only acknowledgement. Apart from McCallan Moore, all the wardens were there. MacDonald and MacLeod, the wardens of the Isles, Seaforth, the warden of the North, Gordon, warden of the East, Athol, the warden of the March, and himself, the warden of the Clyde, the smallest and least important of them all. Bowing to Speaker Urquhart, he took his seat and waited for the session to begin. The investigation into the Dundarav incident was the first piece of business, and the full chamber reflected the high level of interest in it. Like sharks, this lot could smell blood in the water, and they all wanted to get their peace. The room was shuffling and fidgeting, growing more irritated with every passing minute as they waited for McCallan Moore to arrive. Speaker Urquhart kept looking at his watch and muttering to himself, growing more red-faced and irritable. Eventually, judging that the moment was right and that the mood of the chamber had come to the boil, Lamont stood and addressed the Speaker. My Lord Speaker, I'm not sure how much longer you propose to keep us all waiting for the arrival of Macallan Moore, but can I suggest that we start with today's business? I'm sure that I speak for the Chamber when I say we're all busy and have many other matters to attend to, besides considering Argyle's failings. The room erupted with a cacophony of agreement and cries of, Get on with it! Speaker Urquhart looked a little nervous, but nodded his agreement and called for the first Speaker, Tam Matheson of Astell. My Lord Speaker, my Lords, my Ladies, Tam started. We are gathered here today to consider the actions of our colleague, Colin Campbell, Duke of Argyll, in his recent action at Dundarav, the ancient seat of the clan MacNachton. 
As you know, this house gave our girl a commission in his capacity as Warden of the West and Colonel of the Black Watch to catch and bring for trial the miscreants that attacked a naval patrol vessel belonging to our neighbour, the Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, in the Irish Sea last week. Intelligence pointed to a party of McNuchtons being responsible, and he was directed to deploy his militia to take action and detain the guilty party. A simple enough task, he might have thought. Now, I do not need to tell you of the long-running antipathy between these two clans, and you are doubtless aware of the desire that Argyll has held for many years to subsume them and take their land and valuable online interest for himself. What we've seen in the past week is that he has outrageously and willfully exceeded the commission this house entrusted him with. Instead of apprehending the suspects, surely a simple task with those 5,000 men of his, he chose to assault the castle when the clan was celebrating the election of a new chief, the worthy Alexander McNachton, formerly of Albany, whom many of you will know. It's not enough that Argyll illegally used firearms to suppress those that opposed him, despite his overwhelming numbers, but that he should also execute Alexander and his Shanachi in cold blood under the Bratach Gyal, the white flag of truce. But even that was not enough to satisfy him. He vindictively set fire to the ancient seat of Dundarav and destroyed the clan's online gaming operation, their only source of reliable income and an important source of tax revenue for the Republic. Can I ask my fellow chiefs if they feel safe in a Republic where a power-crazed individual can unilaterally take such action? Do my fellow clan chiefs feel that they and their clans are safe, knowing that they could be next? Do my fellow clan chiefs not feel that it is odd, nay, an insult, that the Duke could not even be bothered to come here today to answer these charges? Do they not feel it like a slap to their own face, the disrespect that he's shown to this house and all of us who are in it? The chamber erupted in shouts and jeers and the waving of ski and dews as the mood of the room darkened. Dwarfed by his eagle-backed throne, the speaker called for calm, waving his arms dementedly until at last relative quiet had been restored. Tam Matheson sat down, but Jimmy Singh Davidson now stood up, smoothing his tightly wrapped blue turban as he did so. My lords, surely we've had enough of overpowerful magnates usurping the good intentions of this house for their own benefit. Hasn't Argyle held power for too long and done too little for the good people of the Republic, unless their name was Campbell? Wasn't this unapproved appropriation of another clan's property and the murder of its chief under the Brasach Gyal complete anathema under canon? Where would we be if we allowed this kind of activity to go unpunished, I ask you? Would any clan here be safe? Would the Republic be safe? Where would it end? If the House does not take action today, will the Republic still stand tomorrow, I ask you? And so it went on. Lament sat in his place, listening to all the impassioned words delivered by his puppets, the very words and phrases they used, identical to those he'd given them. He wanted to laugh as the rage and fury of the chamber mounted. Finally, he decided that there had been enough warm-up. Now was the time to strike. Standing, he said, My Lord Speaker, my Lords and Ladies, given everything that we've heard today, there can be no doubt that we need to act, and act quickly. The breathtaking arrogance of Argyle can be seen in his failure to attend today. And I fear that if we delay further, who knows what plan he may be cooking up. Can I therefore propose to this house that we at least require him to surrender his ill-gotten gains? To that end, I am prepared to take the McNuchtons under my wing to help them get back on their feet under my protection. Furthermore, I propose that the chamber strips him of his position as Warden of the West and appoints a new Warden, a more worthy Warden, to take his place. 
Surely there can be no better candidate than Catrona McLean of Dewitt, given her wise counsel and service over many years to this House and to the Republic. The roar of the room gave clear affirmation to these requests, and as the Speaker was calling for a vote, Catrona McLean raised her hand to speak. My Lord is too kind in his words, and it goes without saying that I would be honoured to accept. Furthermore, can I suggest at this uncertain time that the Duke of Argyll is also relieved of his role as Colonel of the Black Watch? It is critical that the Black Watch can be considered as an impartial and trusted service by us all. I think it's clear from today's session that few, if any of us, feel this is a role that Argyle can continue to fulfil. I therefore propose that John Lamont, Warden of the Clyde, is appointed Colonel of the Black Watch, reflecting his many years of service to the Realtas and the Corollier, his steady hand and unquestionable resolve. More cheers greeted this speech although Lamont was sensitive enough to note that the noise levels were by no means as conclusive as those for Dewitt's appointment. He didn't care. This was not a popularity contest after all. To a cacophony of shouts and cheers, Speaker Urquhart called the vote. A little under an hour later, Lamont left Oban with a new commission in his pocket, giving him oversight and control of the Republic's powerful internal security force, the Black Watch. With Argyle now removed from his post, the other magnates were rightly nervous sensing a defining shift in the tectonic plates of the Republic's politics. He had seen Gordon scurry from the building to get back to the security of his lands in the east, and the falling of Seaforth and Athol as he'd left the chamber had been most amusing. Yes, things were going to change now in the Republic, and anyone that got in his way was going to regret it, probably frequently and at his leisure. Chapter 51, Light or dark. He didn't know if he preferred the light or the dark. They both had their positive and negative qualities. He'd had plenty of time to think about them, lying there hour after hour. The dark was the all-consuming utter black of the pit, showing not a chink or crack. He could find a strange comfort in the profound blackness, his brain projecting hallucinations and sparks to fill the void. It did not matter if his eyes were open or closed, they saw the same. The darkness had a mass, though, and that weighed on him. Initially, it felt bearable, but as the minutes, or was it hours, passed, the gravity of the blackness bore down on him, crushing him to the floor and smearing his spirit across the stones like a paste. Then, without warning, light. It burned and blazed like a southern summer sun. It was relentless and unyielding. There was no hiding from its perpetual zenith. They had taken all his clothes, so he could not even shield his eyes from it with the rag. Occasionally he would lie with his head pressed against the wall, or even against the side of his latrine bucket to shelter from the piercing glare in its cooling shadow. The stone cell was about ten foot square and fifteen foot high, the only entrance through a trapdoor in the ceiling. He had already paced the paving slabs hundreds if not thousands of times. Sometimes he tried to walk on the cracks, tracing a heron-toed passage across the room. Sometimes he hopped from stone to stone, testing his balance and accuracy, forcing himself to begin the crossing again if any toe touched a mortar joint. He had traced mazes and labyrinths in the joins, chasing minotaurs and trailing thread to pass the hours. He had ascribed each wall a point on the compass, so that he could turn and imagine the world beyond in each direction. Of course, he had no way of knowing which way he was actually facing, but as he stood full square to each wall in turn, he spread his arms and pressed his body against the stones to project himself outwards, 
as if he could pass through the silent rock into the world beyond, flying across continents and oceans and wandering the cities and byways of his past. He had counted the stones on each wall and even the numbers of stones in each course as they wound their irregular way around the cell. He had tried to concoct mathematical calculations as to the volume and quantities of air and stone that contained his world. But he was rubbish at maths and never felt confident in his calculations. He had nothing to write with or even to mark the stone to assist in his calculations. He had tried to gouge the mortar and use its flakes and crumbled grains as a miniature abacus to stack and measure. But somehow he always lost which grain was what and had to start again. He tried to count counting the minutes and then the hours to give the passage of time a form and meaning. But he'd stopped once he realised that there was no rhythm to the light and dark. He knew that this was deliberate, to disorient and discombobulate, and he wasn't going to play that game. Food came from time to time, lowered on a tray by an unseen hand. At each mealtime he tasted it carefully and sipped the accompanying water drop by drop. He knew enough of the hospitality of some highland magnates to beware MacLeod's meal, the salted ham and seawater repast that would drive his diner insane with thirst. He would rather starve. He spent time thinking of how it had come to this, this cell, his world. He thought of Lament and Dewitt, their laughter ringing in his ears. But he chose to push those thoughts into a deep dark corner of his mind and turn the key on them for the moment. Raging would achieve nothing. Instead, he thought of the pleasures of the world, tracing memories of his parents, their home, their garden, of holidays and presents, laughter and smiles. He frequently turned his thoughts to the women he had known and loved. He caressed their imaginary limbs, traced their contours with his tongue, nuzzling and spooning, clasping and fucking. He tried to remember all their names, not that the list was so long, but some were fleeting and others enduring. Of course, some stood out. Mairead, the first, the sweetness of youth, her passionate kiss and chocolate skin transported him back to a teenage time of urgent moments and tender hours. She dissolved to be replaced by Jane, the glorious Jane, how he missed her laugh. When they'd married, he'd known that he would die with her at his side, years hence, old and worn. But he'd been wrong. Life's cruel joke was to twist that vision until he was stood by her bed for days and weeks and months, watching her fade, to shrink and dry like a raisin in the sun, until there was nothing left. The bloom of youth burned away to a withered husk, filled only with the grist of wasted seeds and tannic bitterness. To expunge that unwelcome thought, he turned to Bridge, her memory so fresh it could still be smelt and tasted, her sharp chin framed by that long blonde hair, her grey eyes flecked with fire like rare agate. How long he could stare into their galaxies and vortices, spinning and whirling, free from the stone cell. And so, McCallan Moore waited. Chapter 52. Kindrocket. The dining room was like a battleground, but one from which Gillespie couldn't flee. The long mahogany dining table stretched away on either side of him. To his far right at the end sat Torkel Farquharson, Charlie's father. To the far left was Derva Guila Farquharson, whose generous and welcoming personality wanted to smother you in its all-encompassing bosom. If looks were weapons, then the pair of them were at Dirk's drawn, fencing and fighting the length and breadth of the table's polished leaves. 
Torquil sat there, bulge-eyed, flushed and shaking, his sticking-out ears waggling in indignation, while his wispy grey hair frizzed itself into a demented halo. He was clearly building up a head of steam for his next sally, when Darica, Charlie's sister, abruptly stood up, propelling her chair backwards across the floorboards and flinging her napkin onto the half-eaten lunch in front of her. For God's sake, give it a rest, Papa. We're not living in the 19th century. Anyone would think you've been living under a stone. It's not as if Charlie's relationship with Ninian has been a secret. They've been living together for five years. How could you be so rude to your own son and embarrass him in front of his friends? You should be ashamed. Dervaguila busted in to add, I think it's simply wonderful that Charlie's brought Ninian to see us at long last. I'm so looking forward to getting properly acquainted. With that, she pressed her hand on top of Ninian's and smiled warmly at him. Nin's whitened knuckles and clenched fists betrayed the feelings that his calm face was hiding. He turned and flashed her his most charming grin while patting her hand and said, It has been such a pleasure to meet you all at last. Charlie has told me so much about you. I've never been to the Cairngorms before, so it's great to have a reason to come and visit. Sharing a room, nay, even a bed under my roof, never. I mean, the shame of it. I have my honour and my reputation to think of, Torquil retorted, his whole body bristling to his eyebrows and beyond. Well, strictly speaking, darling, it's my roof, said Dervaguila, and if we're talking about Fargus and honour, then I think I'm best placed to be the judge of that, don't you, seeing as how I'm the chief? It's been so long since you were a McTavish. When you took my name, you took the lion and forsook the boar's head. You really can't have split allegiances. Anyway, surely that feud has been laid and the blood debt paid. For once stumped, Torquil muttered and shook his head. Outnumbered and outgunned, he knew this was not a battle that he could win. Gillespie had sat watching the exchange with the dispassionate interest of the anthropologist, observing and learning, happy not to have a dog in the fight. Just as the table returned to relative calm and Derek regained her seat, Gillespie mischievously asked, I had no idea there was an outstanding blood feud between the McTavishes and the McNachtons. How did it happen? It was an innocent enough sounding question, but Gillespie knowingly lobbed it like a grenade onto the table and stood well back to observe what happened next. Charlie caught his eye and raised his eyebrows as if to say, Did you really have to do that? Nin sighed, Dervaguila slumped, and Darica stood up again and left the table. But Torquil seemed to swell as if attached to an airline, rolling his shoulders and cracking his knuckles as he turned his full attention away from his son's dubious partner to observe his other guest, a stranger in a strange land. Well, Gillespie, that's an interesting question, and one that you as an outsider is certainly free to ask, although I should caution you that even such a simple question can lead to unexpected and complicated answers. Can I suggest you charge your glass while I tell you the story, and then you can tell me whether you think my disquiet is unwarranted? It all began in 1936, when Diarmid McTavish, the 20th chief of the clan, had two daughters. The fair Rosa, as lissom and bewitching as any dew-dropped rosebud, the flower of the county, desired and loved by all, and the doughty Yalasach who was as plain as her sister was beautiful. To cement the relationship between the McTavishes and the McNachtons, it was decided that a wedding should be made to bolster their friendship and strengthen the ties that our small clans need if they're to hold out against our more powerful neighbours. Anyway, Toromod, the middle son of the McNachton chief, was the lucky recipient of this honour, and the fragrant Rosa was proposed as the perfect match. 
They were engaged and spent many a happy hour in each other's company, getting to know each other and preparing for their life together. The wedding day was set, the guests invited, the feast prepared, and the two clans met for the ceremony in the parish kirk in Inverary. This kirk conveniently has two identical halves, perfect for such an occasion, so that each clan may arrive without meeting through their own entrances. This wise arrangement was created to reduce the risk of feuding and fighting during a service. The bride duly arrived, robed and veiled in virginal white, and was piped up the aisle to Donadri's delight. The minister duly conducted and concluded the ceremony, at which point he invited Toromod to kiss the bride. But imagine Toromod's horror when he withdrew the veil and found himself staring at none other than the mustachioed face of Yalasash. This bait-and-switch approach to marriage was a common feature of Highland weddings of old, so quite why the McNuchtons were so surprised is a mystery to us McTavishes. I think they were just a little sore that we'd outsmarted them. However, it's fair to say that Toromod took umbrage at the arrangement. After the party had retired for a tense wedding breakfast at Dundarav, he persuaded the fair Rosa, who he had successfully wooed during their engagement, to flee with him through the lavatory window into a waiting boat and away. In the ensuing altercation, several clansmen were killed on both sides, triggering a long-running and sanguinous blood feud. The official feud was suspended in 1973 by the Court of Cannon, all sides judging that the passage of time and the number of bodies had more than exceeded the acceptable level for Clyu to be satisfied. And no one knows what became of Toromod and Fair Rosa. They disappeared without trace. But to this day, there are few McTavishes that you will find sit down with a McNuchton, let alone take one into his bed. Gillespie looked from Torquil to Nin, to Charlie, and then to Durvaguila, for once stunned into silence. Nin was flushed, whether from the wine or his rising ire at the story. Charlie twitched nervously while his father was like the cock of the heap, all puffed up with pride at the clever double-cross that his McTavish ancestors had performed. Dervaguila turned to Gillespie and said in a caring whisper that all could hear, You see, that is the problem with the Gallic Republic. All bore bags and no brains. You'd think that if all the killing and ill-temper was enough for the court of cannon to end it over forty years ago, that the clan of today could just forgive, forget and move on. But no, there's more pride than sense in some, that's for sure. To mollify the tension in the room, Gillespie stood and proposed a toast, raising his glass to each in turn. To Diarmid McTavish, the smart and slippery, to Rosa, young and fair, to Yalasach, the sour and jilted, and Toromod, who ran like a hare. It was as he said the words that he felt a horrible realisation creeping up his throat from his stomach to fill his airway. He gasped and instinctively drained his glass. It was wine. Spluttering, he put the glass down on the table. No one else seemed to have noticed. They had all raised their glasses and were drinking down the contents. Torquil even starting to chuckle with Nin over the outrageous and unjust exploits of ancestors past. But Gillespie's mind was blazing. Computing dates and ages, transliterating names, his doubts dissolving as he did so. It couldn't be true, but it suddenly seemed inarguable. It was the names that did it, more than the dates. His grandfather's name was Norman. Gillespie had always thought it an odd and strangely English name for a man of Gallic heritage. A man who did not suffer fools and had little time for small boys. He could see him now in his battered tweed, socks rolled over his gumboots his hat slouched low. His grandmother had been called Roz. He'd barely known her. She'd died in a car accident when he was five, 
leaving Norman bereft. Key piece of the puzzle was only obvious to him now, having heard Torquil's tale, because the Gallic translation of Norman was Toromod. Could this have been his grandparents? Is this why they left the Republic? Why his grandfather would never return or even speak of the clan or the Republic? Was it guilt over all those unnecessary deaths? Or was it wounded pride at being duped? His head span with the revelation, but he said nothing. This was not the time or the place. Gillespie now desperately wanted to move the conversation on, away from Toromod and Rosa. Fortunately, Charlie did it for him. Enough of all that. We need to get back down to some serious business and find out what's going on at Dundarav. Mum, what have you heard? Dervaguila wiped her mouth with a napkin. I'm afraid nothing good. In the collier, it feels like the wheel is turning and that we're in for a period of upheaval. Now that Catrona McLean has been made Warden of the West, the Chiefs are waiting to see how she's going to change things. Given that this is the first time in two centuries that there's no Campbell as Warden of the West, we can expect change aplenty in time. For us in the East, it may not matter that much. We have our own breed of overlords in Gordon and Athol, but for you folks in the West, it surely will. There is also more to this than meets the eye. I had that slimeball John Lamont on the phone the other day trying to drum up support for his scheme to censure McAllen Moore. Although I've no love for McAllen Moore, I went along with it to find out what was going on. It's always useful to know what's going on in John Lamont's head when one has the opportunity. At that stage, he was just sounding out support for a censure motion. I had no idea it would lead to this power play. What is particularly fishy is that there's still no sign of McAllen Moore. He's vanished off the face of the earth. One has to wonder if he's languishing in one of Castle Ascog's dungeons or worse. This move propels Lamont to the top of the heap. With the Black Watch at his back, he now not only has more men than anyone else, but he can also swathe it in a veil of legitimacy. It was quite disgusting to see how fast Athol and Seaforth went round to offer him their congratulations. They clearly know which way the wind is blowing. The final fly on this ointment for you, I'm afraid, is that he also had himself appointed as guardian of Clan Necton, to protect you from the ravages of your overpowerful neighbour, at least until you have a new chief. And we can all imagine that the appointment of a new chief may now be some way in the future, if he has anything to do with it, which he will. What? exploded Nin and Charlie simultaneously, eyes and mouths agape at the shocking news. Nin continued, How can that be allowed? We've never had to submit to any chief before. We are one of the oldest clans and have always been independent. There's no way the clan can submit to this. Dervaguila sighed. I know, it's a mess and not something that would ever normally be countenanced. It just happened. He played the collier like a cheap violin and while some of us bridled at the tug of his bow, none of us could resist the tune. I'm sorry. Gillespie had never seen Nin look dumbstruck before, but he now sat there silent, holding his head in his hands, staring down at the table. Charlie leant over and put his arm around him, squeezing his shoulder. Nin shrugged off his attempt at empathy. Torquil started whittering about how maybe this meant it was a good idea for him to stay at Kondrocket for the foreseeable future, at least until things had calmed down. Dervaguila nodded her agreement and started proposing different long-term accommodation arrangements for them to consider. Darica just stood in the doorway, listening. Gillespie's head swam, no longer sure which way was up. The idea that the infamous John Lament of the Sorrows, the Lamentation himself, was going to become the overlord of the clan was impossible to bear. He thought of Breached and Kirsty, Jamie and Ian the Rat, not to mention Fiona and Mara and Archie Beaton, 
and all the others he'd met during his few short days at Dundarav. What would happen to them now? Were they just to become meat in the Lamentations grinder, indented to the Republic's most notorious and cruel despot? The unexpected thump of both of Nin's fists hitting the table caused the plates and glasses to jump, eliciting a gasp from the assembled company. Lifting his face, he stared round the table at each in turn, his irises transformed from their normal soft and gentle cornflower blue to glittering sapphire. No, this cannot be allowed to stand, while I or any McNuchton has blood in our veins and breath in our lungs. If Lament thinks he can take us so easily, we must learn him another lesson. We haven't endured 500 years of Campbell depredations to roll over and be plucked by that bastard. At which he looked at Charlie and Gillespie, searching from one to the other for support. Aye, was all that Charlie said. And Gillespie heard that brief but resolute affirmation echoed by another's lips. His own. Dervaguila frowned and rubbed her forehead as if to dispel the creases and wrinkles that were now crowded there. You're awful brave or awful foolish. I know the lamentation better than any round this table, and I can assure you he's every bit as cruel and relentless as his reputation. Courage will not be enough. You will need to be patient and devious too. You can't just walk up and ask him to leave. You not only need to take back what's yours, but to hold it you'll need to prize it out of his cold, dead hand. His vanity will not allow him to relinquish what once he's held. Well, I'm sure that can be arranged, said Nin, pushing back from the table and getting to his feet. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastin. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production. <laughs>